Well, good afternoon, church. And um, we are going to be in Ezra chapter 9 again today, as Adam, or excuse me, as Jonathan read earlier. And uh, just excited again to finish up these last uh, two chapters in Ezra. And let me just say on the front end that I'm very thankful as a, as a pastor of a church that longs to hear the Word of God and particularly longs to hear the Word of God even when it's tough to hear. You know, there's a lot of uh, movement in churches today that stress a uh, feel-good, easy-believism type of preaching ministry. And if you haven't discovered this by now, and I think you have because that's why you're here, uh, we don't want to back away from even the difficult passages that are, are committed to us by the Lord in the Word of God. And we've dealt with a lot of these difficult passages over the years. And one of the difficult themes to talk about is sin. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily make you feel good when you leave here by hearing about sin for 45 to 50 minutes. But the truth of the matter is, is that it is good for us to be reminded about the nature of sin and our need for the Lord Jesus. And I'm thankful that we have this gospel renewal time because it, it puts forth before us the gospel every uh, worship time. And that's a picture of us walking through our, our, our daily lives being reminded not that I need the gospel on Sunday, but that I need the gospel every day, every minute, because of the great nature of sin that I wrestle with, that you all wrestle with day by day. And so as we look again at sin today, because that is the theme of chapter 9, I want us to uh, just allow it to point us back to Jesus, because Jesus is our hope of escape for, from sin and therefore, we can celebrate, although sin being a difficult and, and daily struggle, we can celebrate on this Lord's Day that Jesus Christ has given us victory over sin. And so whatever that might be in your life today, as we talked last week about the Word of God exposing our sin, there is hope in Jesus. There is hope in Him. There's not hope in me there's not hope in this church. There's not hope in your daily activities as a believer. Uh, there's hope in Jesus and, and what he accomplishes. Now, as you guys know, or a lot of you guys know, uh, my family was, uh, they grew up in the Catholic church. And uh, when my dad was uh, a young man, he uh, heard the gospel preached for the first time. Um, he grew up in a time when Catholicism, which is it's somewhat different today, but he grew up in a time when Catholicism did not encourage you to own a Bible, nor read a Bible, um, because that's what you had the priest for. And, and so my dad uh, grew up going to church. My, my mom who raised me, she was uh, Irish Catholic, and my dad was, was an Italian, so naturally the cultures there really almost demanded Catholicism. And, um, and my dad was radically saved um, as a young man, hearing the gospel at a, at a gospel singing. You guys know what that is. Never been to one myself. But anyway, uh, he heard the gospel preached, and the Lord saved him. And he, uh, 
he left the Catholic Church with uh, as an adult, and my mom also as well, and, and we were raised um, as Protestants. Adam's been teaching us about the Reformation. The Reformation is not a scary word. It's a word of celebration because of what happened with Martin Luther standing up against the tyranny and uh, the abuse of the Catholic Church um, back in those days. And, and one of the things that spun from the Catholic Church, including these solas that, that Adam is reading, is that this desire for the Word of God to be believed and to be trusted fully, wholly, and completely, and that every person would be able to have a copy of God's Word, to read it and to study it and to interpret it and believe it on their own, not with the help of another person. Now that kind of sounds like it uh, shows no need for preachers. There is a need for the preaching of God's Word, but, but you are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to read God's Word. You are responsible to read it and to allow the Holy Spirit to interpret it for you. That's your responsibility. I'm responsible to preach it accurately to you, but the Lord God wants you to have a personal relationship with Him. He wants you to have a copy of His Word. He wants you to study it. And in that study, He's going to expose sin. Well, one of the things that fascinated me about my dad's Catholicism as I began to grow into a a young man and and believe in Jesus and trust in him when I was in college, around the same age as my dad, is the idea of confession in the Catholic Church. Now, I would go to Mass with my grandmother because it made my grandmother happy and my dad just, you know, was trying to be kind to her. And so we would go to Mass and I was always fascinated by the confession booth. You know, as a kid, you see images of it, and you're like, what's going, what magical thing is happening in there? And the truth of it is, now in my own theology, I know nothing was happening in there. I know that a man that was qualified in the Catholic Church as a priest was listening to the sins of other people, and those people were confessing their sins to that priest Because they were taught and they believed that confessing sin was a means of grace that helped justify them for their faith. That they had to do that to to accumulate and to acquire this measure of faith or grace that would be applied to them when they passed away from this earth. And Catholicism and other uh, faiths of of that nature are a works-based faith because they are constantly, we call it meritorious justification. They are constantly trying to merit their justification. As Protestants, we don't believe that. We believe in Jesus Christ's meritorious justification. That He did all that was necessary for us to believe and have faith in Him. He did all that was necessary for sin to be covered and satisfied by the wrath of God. Now, I'll start off this afternoon talking to you about this because from Ezra chapter 9 and talking about the way in which sin was exposed, I want to talk to you today about the idea of confessing sin. And I want to be clear that as we begin this look into this passage today, I'm, not, I'm going to challenge you to live a life as believers... 
who confess their sin to God. But you are not confessing your sin to God to acquire some measure of of satisfaction or pleasing Him in some way. You are confessing your sins to God because I believe that the Scriptures teach it. They portray it as a practice, a daily practice of, um, of honest believers who are taking their sins, they're admitting their sins to God, and they're trusting in the finished work of Christ to cleanse those sins from all unrighteousness. So, just to review, we looked in Ezra chapter 9, and as I told you last week, Ezra was... Uh, he, he was busy doing the, the work of the ministry. He was a, a preacher of God's word. And as he was proclaiming the word of God, we talked about the, the power of God's word, the living and active word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing every division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And so the word exposes us, it opens our soul up to the Lord so that the Word of God penetrates and shows us our sin. And what happened in Ezra's ministry is he's preaching, the people grow under or get under conviction of what has happened, and a report comes to Ezra about this sin among the people. Now sadly, if you're going to look back at the life of Israel you're going to really see the theme of sin. And that's, that's important for us to, to, to notate today because when we see the constant wickedness and sin of Israel, we rest upon and savor the grace of God. See, we're not trying to, to bash the Jewish people. We're trying to elevate and, and glorify the faithful, loving God who loved them in spite of their sin and wickedness. So all those stories of the Tower of Babel, Noah's flood, well it wasn't Noah's flood, it was God's flood, Noah just survived it. We often see those stories as God's wrath and God's judgment and those are all very true. But on the other side of those stories is the beautiful and unlimited grace of God. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So this report comes to Ezra, and he, as we looked last week, is appalled. He is utterly disgusted at once again seeing the same sin of Israel manifested in their lives. Well, what was that sin? Well, first of all, we define sin as that which is crooked or twisted or perverted, Things that we do that is crooked or twisted against in conflict with what God desires. And in God's covenant with Israel, He is calling them to love Him. He is calling them to obey His commandments. And we see that they don't do that. And one of the commandments that they break, in particular to our passage today, is He calls them not to intermarry with those from other nations. His concern, if you marry with those from other nations, you will fall into idolatry. You will love the things that your spouses love, which is false gods. 
And we can see that as truth in our life, right? I mean, think about your marriage. You love things now because your, your wives love those things or your husbands love those things that you really weren't interested in before. My wife knows more about sports and Star Wars now than she ever would have known before. We fall in love with those things because we love our spouses. We love our children and thus we are naturally gravitating to those things which our loved ones love. And God knew that about humanity and so He knew if you intermarry with pagan people, you will love pagan gods. And oftentimes the formula or the the result or the fruit of that was is they would take the Jewish faith and these pagan faiths and they would synchronize them together. Which is also a very dangerous deception. And so today we're going to look at this prayer that Ezra prays to God in response to the sin of Israel. And in this prayer, he is confessing to God regarding the sins of the people. Now, let me give you a disclaimer at the very beginning. You're going to see Ezra use pronouns like we, us, our, sin. He's going to refer to it in that way. And one of the first questions that you have to ask is, why is he referring to this sin if it's not his sin? Well, consistently through the Old Testament, the office of the priest, the office of the spiritual leader, would bear the weight of that sin, not because he was guilty of it, but because he was the spiritual leader over these people. And therefore, he's taking some ownership of their failures, and he's praying on behalf of the nation. In the same way that you may pray for this nation, that you may see the ramifications of sin that's permeating every ounce of this nation. And so you may pray, Lord, save our nation or or save our community from gross sin. Even though you may not engage in that particular or personal sin. So Ezra is bearing the weight as a spiritual leader. And in his confession, he will use these pronouns because while he may not have committed the sin, he fears that he will endure the ramifications and the judgment because of them. And we can all relate to that as well, too. Remember as a kid, that one sibling that always ruined the family vacation for somebody else? You're like, would you just please stop talking so that all of our other fun is not ruined and squashed? I was that kid, actually, in my family. I was the one that set my parents off and ruined the trip to the ice cream place or whatever because I was just a jerk. But I want to challenge you from these passages today what it looks like, some elements of what a life of confession looks like. From the aspect of prayer. We go to God. We live as believers. Confessing our sin to a God. Who acts upon our sin. Who is active. Responding to our sin. And so I want to give us a couple examples. 
in a minute of how we confess sin to God. Now, before I do, I want to bring to our attention some unbiblical ways in which we respond to sin. Ezra is giving us a positive way. Let's think about some negative ways that we respond to sin. One is running and hiding. We run and hide from sin. Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God, what did they do? They, they ran and they hid from God in their rebellion. Sin had exposed their nakedness. And their response when God called to them from the garden was they hid from Him because they were afraid. They were afraid of His judgment. And we know as believers that a proper response to sin is not running from God, it's running to Him. Another way that we should not respond to sin is blaming others instead of ourselves. We love to shift blame as again we see in the account of Adam and Eve. Adam actually is confronted by God for the sin, Adam and Eve both, and Adam steps up as the leader, and and instead of taking ownership as the leader of his home, he actually blames God for the failure of his disobedience. And we can all do that, right? This woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Sometimes we blame God because the task He's given us is too, tif- too difficult to obey. Adam blames God's sovereign plan of bringing Eve to be his wife. This woman that you gave me, God, this wouldn't have happened if you would have given me maybe a stronger woman. Adam makes it seem as if God was the reason for the sin primarily occurring, and Eve secondarily was the cause because she gave him the fruit and he ate. Notice, first it was God's fault, then it was Eve's fault, and then finally he's like, oh, and I ate. Blaming others instead of ourselves. We've been given a choice, church, to act in this world according to God's word, and if we don't obey what he commands, it's our fault and no one else's. Thirdly, another way in which we negatively respond to sin or ways we should not respond to sin is we self-destruct. Sometimes we are confronted with sin and and our response is self-destruction. And I I see this in the offspring of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. As I've told you recently, and we recommend the book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and he labels these two responses, first being flight, we respond to confrontation and sin with flight, we flee away, right? That's running and hiding from God. But the other extreme is we fight. And oftentimes that fight includes rage, anger, hate, physical conflict, and, and we, we fight when we're cornered. We're like a wild dog in the corner. And we, we fight back. Because we've been confronted with the reality. And we feel trapped. 
Cain and Abel is a great example of that. God confronts Cain. Cain's already sinned in just preparing a, 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 a mediocre sacrifice for God. He wasn't giving God his best. He was holding back something for himself. And in doing so, God accepted his brother's sacrifice and not his. And, and that led to what? Self-destruction. More and more and more and more sin. His mediocre sacrifice led to jealousy. And his jealousy led to anger. And his anger led to hatred and murder. And his hatred and murder led to denial of the fact that he even killed his brother when God confronted him again. God warns Cain, Cain's sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Cain ignored God's wisdom and he allowed the self-destructive snowball of sin to accumulate more and more. So the proper attitude as a believer then is to humble ourselves and confess our sins to God. Not running from Him, not fighting Him, going to Him. We're going to look at a few elements this morning. Number one, Ezra shows us in his prayer immediately that our confession to God should start by us honoring Him, praising Him. In Ezra chapter 6, in verse, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 6, he starts his prayer simply with, Oh my God. He's acknowledging in humility the honor that God is due to his name. That only God is the source of help for his problem. We've already seen in the first section of Ezra, and Jonathan read verse 5 for us, but we can also see in chapter 10, verse 1, the posture that Ezra takes in his prayer. Chapter 9, verse 5, we see that at the evening sacrifice, he rose from fasting. His garments were torn. He fell on his knees. He spread out his hands and prayed to the Lord his God. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Ezra prayed and made confession weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Again, what a great picture for our, this spiritual leader, Ezra, who's not even guilty of this sin, and yet he is humbling himself and approaching God in a proper way. He's mourning over the sin of the people. He's ripping his beard out. He's tearing his clothes. He's acknowledging the, the offense. And, and the, the reaction that he gives us is humility. He's going to God as the only source of help in his situation. We must understand that confession of sin must begin by acknowledging the glory of God that demands our worship, not our disobedience. That when we have been offended, when, excuse me, when God's glory has been offended, we must be broken over our sin and humble in the weight of His glory. It's an improper posture for prayer if you and I are pointing fingers at everybody else like little four-year-olds. He made me do it. 
God knows our hearts. The word has exposed us open. The, the surgery has been done. The, 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 the cause is, 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 is laid bare so that we see our sin. God knows it. He sees it. Ezra starts his prayer off in a very positive way. He says, my God, oh my God. He's showing us the pathway in which our prayer of confession might begin. And he uses the pronoun, my God. Not that God belongs to him, but that he belongs to God. That he has access to take his requests and, 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 and plead his case and the case of his people before a holy God. Because of this belonging, he has understanding that he would still tremble in the presence of God and yet humble himself in his love. He understands God's steadfast love. He will speak about it in a minute. So he doesn't go to the people and say, guys, we need to, we need to have a reform here. We need to have a, a change of heart. He says, God, this is the problem that's happening. I bring my confession of, 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 of our people's sin to you with a proper humility. And so as we consider our spiritual lives, we must understand that, that we go to God because we belong to Him through Jesus Christ. He is also our God and we are His people as the church because of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who's in heaven. He's our Father. He, we belong to Him. We can speak to Him as His, as his children. That we can be intimate and open with Him, confessing our sin, honoring Him. Hebrews chapter 4 is a great reminder of that for the church. Jesus, it says, is our high priest. We have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice that, that we will find grace. It's already been provided for. It's even referenced as the throne of grace. Again, this is a Protestant theology where we are not searching and working for grace. The grace resides in the storehouse of Jesus. He provides the grace already attained, already provided for for His people. There is no meriting or working for grace in this world. And because we can approach God with confidence, then we start our, conf our prayers of confession with honoring God. And I would encourage you to, be to begin your prayers in this way. You know, as you go to prayer each day, I would start off with praising and honoring God for His attributes. 
Identify the very things in which you will be resting in as you pray. His sovereign love. His unlimited grace and forgiveness. His providence to work out whatever it is that you have done and the consequences that might follow. Praise His grace as you honor Him. Praise His attributes as you honor Him. And then jump into your confession. Sometimes we're quick to go, Lord, here's my laundry list of things that I need today. Like it's a grocery list. Instead, start off with, Father, your goodness is unmatched. Your grace is unlimited in my life. Your faithfulness is unimaginable. And because of these things, I can come to you confessing my wrongs that I've committed. Start off with honoring God. Number two, reflecting on your past sins. In verses 6 and 7, Ezra jumps into this confession. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. There he is saying, Our iniquities have, ar- have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Ezra's not free of guilt. He's not free of sin. He may not have committed this, but he's acknowledging even his own sinfulness in this world. Verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And our iniquities, we are kings and our priests, have given into the hands of the kings of the land to the sword, to the captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Ezra starts off by looking to the past. He says, here we are, Lord, once again. He's, I'm disgusted with this crookedness. He said, I'm, I'm blushed to even lift my face to you, for our iniquities are so great. Our, our, this metaphorical language, our guilt has mounted to the heavens. You know what's wrong with the church today? We don't look at our sin that way. Oh, I just did a, I committed a white lie, I've done these things. We don't acknowledge the fact that moment by moment and moment and day by day, our guilt has been mounting to the heavens. And it's unimaginable. You think the national debt is high? You should really consider the thoughts and intentions of your own heart that mount up to an unimaginable moment or, 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 or level in which it seems insurmountable. If it wasn't for the grace of God. And there's nothing wrong with looking back at our sins that we've committed. You know, the ledger of, ledger of our sins in the past against God is long and the sin debt is great against Him. And as we look back, there's a couple things that looking back help us do. Number one, the past sins, as we look back, point to present sins. Ezra's acknowledging all the things that they had done that led them to Babylonian captivity in verses 6 and 7. From the days of our father to this day, we've been in great guilt. Why? Because we've committed the same sins over and over again. And as we look back on our lives, as, as we look at the things in which we've done, one of the things it does is it points to the present sin that we commit today. 
What do I mean? Well, because in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, it says, Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Our past sins point to our present sins because we are constantly struggling with the same sins over and over again. It's part of the decaying and corrupt world that we live in. Does God give us victory? Momentary, daily victory? Absolutely. In your sanctification, are you growing farther and farther away from the level of anger or the level of jealousy or the level of backbiting or the level of gossip that you were before, previously, the day before, the week before? Absolutely. But in your prayer of confession, acknowledging the past helps you identify the present sin in your life. Number two, the past points to present grace. Looking at your past sin reminds us of the present moment in time that you are living and breathing. If, if you can look back and, and remember the things that you have done in, 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 in a treacherous heart, in a rebellious heart against God, and that you are literally there in this present moment acknowledging that, that is God's grace that He has allowed you to live and breathe and even remember those things. Why are you not dead? Why has God not laid waste to you in judgment because of those past things? You are remembering the past because God is gracious. It points to His grace. And that's where it leads Ezra in verses 8 and 9. To testify of God's grace. But for now, he says, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves. Yet God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruin, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. According to the theological word book of the Old Testament, the Hebrew term Hanan, translated favor here in verse 8, literally means giving help to those in need. God's favor, His grace, is literally His unlimited help for us in need. Certain names that are used today, like Anne and Anna and Anita and Annette and Juan and Hannah, those are all derivatives of the Hebrew word that means favor, Hanan. We named our daughter Grace Grace. That's her real name. Ezra acknowledges that as the priest of the people, that God has shown them His immeasurable favor over the years. And you and I, we sit here today, and we acknowledge that God has allowed us day by day to live in His grace and to, to enjoy the, the beauty of this world and, and the, the blessings of life and family and, 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 and most importantly, the joy of salvation in Him 
only and completely by his grace. We don't deserve it. And a great example of that was Ananias and Sapphira. They were members of the early church. We don't know if they were believers, but in the very moment that they lied to the Holy Spirit, God took them out. So if they were true believers, and God was trying to prove a point in the early church, then they were believers in Jesus Christ and had a moment of of sinfulness where they lied to the Holy Spirit, and to prove a point, God took them out. So that fear would spread across the church. And God's judgment on sin. Why has he allowed us to live? I think sometimes as the people of God, we walk around entitled as if God, we've earned some reason that God has allowed us to live. And that our prayer lives should be instead, God, thank you for this day that you have just given me. For the moments that I have in in this moment to live and to breathe and to enjoy the beauty and the fruitfulness of your grace. Because I may not live to the end of this day. But if I do, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to confess my sin and acknowledge you're my only source of help. In Ezra's prayer in verses 8 and 9, he also mentions that God has left them a remnant to give them a secure hold within this holy place. This remnant, this small fraction of people that God allowed to escape captivity and from the Babylonians when the Persians captured and returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That word remnant is used about regarding those exiles. But that remnant is a, is a very theological word that's used throughout the New Testament to signify those in which God had allowed to continue on to show His faithfulness to God's promises. I mean, think about it. If in the judgment of God in allowing these people to to come back and in their sinfulness and rebellion against God, once again, God wipes them out with his judgment. Jesus never comes. Jesus never walks the earth. Jesus never lives a sinful life. But because of the faithfulness of the promises of God, he allows the remnant to continue to resettle Jerusalem, the temple be rebuilt, so that one day Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. The Isaiah the prophet prophesies this in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the son of David. This is a promise of the Messiah that came from the lineage of David. And it says, He is a branch, and from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this prophecy by Isaiah is referring to the remnant that would come And from that remnant, the remnant was the stump of Jesse. That stump was the remnant of the kingdom of David that still existed because God allowed them to escape captivity, go back to Jerusalem. 
And from that stump came a shoot, a sign of new life, a bud of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we understand as the church a true understanding of God's grace. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Adam, we, 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 he said this earlier, God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. So let me just encourage you, church, that as you go to the Lord in confession, and you're acknowledging your past sins, you're not acknowledging your past sins to live in shame or guilt, because the Lord Jesus Christ took that shame and guilt upon himself. You're not going to your past sins and go, man, I really owe God a lot. No, because Jesus took the penalty for your sin upon himself as well when he bore the wrath of God. He accomplished all that was necessary so that when we look at the past sins that we've committed, we can revel and enjoy and and celebrate the beauty of God's grace that is provided in Jesus Christ and his suffering and his death and his resurrection upon the cross. Thirdly, not only honor God, not only acknowledge your past sins, but identify your current sins. Confessing your sins to God is is stating, is specifying what you have done, what you are confessing. In verses 10 through 12, Ezra gets specific about the, the day, today, as he prays. He says, and now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end, with their uncleanliness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong, and you eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. See, now Ezra's identifying the, the current problem. Now he's confessing the current situation, and he's being very specific. He's identifying the sin in relationship to the commandment. He's being very specific about the the forbidding of God for intermarrying these foreign peoples that Israel had violated, the Jews had violated. That the Word of God is the measuring stick that identified what their sin was. And I couldn't help but be challenged to Confess sin with specificity. You know, we go oftentimes to the Lord in our prayer, and we can be very detailed with our intercession, 
and be very general with our confession. We can go and and list all these people that we're praying for and all their problems and all their difficulties and and spend moments and and minutes and, and, and hours even. This long list of God, can you help grandma and can you help my friend and can you be with our church and you can do all these things. And that's wonderful. But when we get to confession, are we being that specific? Are we just saying, Lord, forgive me of my sin? See, I think there's a value to being very specific and acknowledging the details of our sins to God. One, because I think the Lord Jesus models that prayer of confession in Matthew chapter uh, 6, verse 12. Where He gives us this model prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Well, we take that to interpret that to mean, forgive us of what? our spiritual debts before God as we've forgiven those who are indebted to us. A couple things are happening there. Jesus is giving us this model, acknowledging that we have spiritual debts, that we are sinners before God, that we have accumulated this debt. But that he also mentions that the person praying is acknowledging that other people have offended them or owe them and that they are reconciled with those people. There's a sense of specificity there. Not generality. So I think Jesus models a confession of specifics and details. Secondly, I think the detailed prayer of confession acknowledges to God that you understand what you've done. It's a level of humility. We would teach this same level of humility in reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. If you go home tonight, church, husband, if you go home tonight and you offend your wife and you go up to her and you say, sweetie, I I know that I've done a lot of bad things over these years and I just want to say I'm sorry. That's not going to mean a whole lot to your spouse. But when you go to her and you admit what you have just committed, whatever sin or offense you have done, and you you acknowledge that thing, you are humbling yourself to say, sweetheart, I shouldn't have done this particular thing, and for that I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Being specific, acknowledging the details of your sin to God is not a surprise to Him. But it does acknowledge that you have humbled yourself. You have nothing to hide before His glory and His name as you confess those details in brokenness over the offense. I love the Psalm, Psalm 32, where David is pleading before God. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He was under conviction. He says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then that pause, that Selah. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. 
I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's like a breath of fresh air for David. He acknowledges his sin. He confesses it. He enjoys and understands the forgiveness that God has provided. Fourthly, pleading for mercy. Ezra concludes in verses uh, 13 through 15 as if he's throwing his hands up in the air and says, after all these things that have come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than we deserve and have given us a remnant as this, He asked the question in verse 14, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. What a, an amazing response by Ezra to acknowledge simply this. Ezra saying, we are standing here as a people. We have continually sinned against you. How will we escape this? How will we escape your wrath? How will we escape the judgment? He asked the question, there's this remnant, will you wipe out the remnant altogether? Will you do away with it because we are continually evil and sinful? We talked about the the results of that, if that would have happened. But he continues to pray, God, you are just As of today, we are a remnant that has escaped, but, and I would add the but, but, behold, we're before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. I want to point you to three passages that deal with this same type of response to sin. Nahum chapter 1 The prophet Nahum preaching to the people of Nineveh. He says, who can stand before God's indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end to the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Notice the phrase, who can stand before His indignation? Malachi says something very similar. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. The Apostle John says the same thing in Revelation chapter 6. Asking the question, who can stand? 
in the power of God's holiness and justice upon sin, who can stand? Who can escape? Ezra answers the question for us. No one can stand. No one can escape. Kind of points us back to Romans. No one is good. No one seeks after God. We all stand in this guiltiness before God. We are all on a journey toward the condemnation and the punishment of God. All of humanity, whether they realize it or not, are in a pathway to destruction because of sin. And the only hope and the only way of escape is the Lord Jesus. And so my final element is simply this. In your prayer of confession, it's not dependent upon your work, it's dependent upon the work of Christ. That Jesus Christ is the hope that we have. That Jesus Christ is the reason that as we confess our sins, we know that His blood has covered our sins. In a minute, we're going to come up, Adam's going to sing, Jesus paid it all. Jesus took all the punishment upon Himself, bearing the weight of sin, so that our confession is an acknowledgement to God with hoping in Jesus Christ for full forgiveness and pardon. And so let this church be the model of our prayer. This is how we start our faith in Christ. Not, so, not by some magical prayer, but by a heartfelt confession of sin toward God and a hope in Jesus Christ alone. And maybe some of you here today need to have a true confession of sin toward God and a trust in Him alone as your only source of salvation. Maybe you've been depending upon the work of your hands and not the work of Christ on the cross. If so, confess your sin to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1. And, and church, make confession of your sin a regular practice in your prayer life and your daily walk. Confess your sin immediately. Confess it heart, heartfeltly with, with all and truth and humility, trusting in Christ alone, and you will be forgiven because of all Christ has done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you teach us from your word and the work of Christ upon the cross. God, on this resurrection day, we hope in his victory. We hope in His finished work. We, we praise You that Jesus Christ from the cross declared, it is finished. We know that the work has been done so that our hope lies with Him. We thank You that our past, present, and future sins are atoned for as we put our faith in Jesus. Father, thank You for this model prayer of of Ezra, that we might apply to our lives day by day as your church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's stand together.